and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work, Nashville. Proud sponsor of This is Nashville's immersive documentary episode, Alternate Ending. Learn more about degree programs at csw.utk.edu. From WPLN News, I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Today's show is a little bit different. Because I'm taking the mic. I'm WPLN's Metro reporter, Ambrielle Crutchfield, and this hour, I'm bringing you a story from inside my family's childhood home in North Nashville. Really? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, God, thank you, Jesus. You make me cry. Because <laughs> I wanted to knock on that lady's door and go in. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Ooh, it walls could talk. They'll be laughing when I get in there. Yeah, this is a story about how Nashville shaped my family and disrupted their sense of community. You ready or not? It's time to rock out when you clock out. It's time. It's the final clock drop with Dola White. 101 The Beat. La, 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 wait till I give my money right. This is the sound of my childhood. It feels like I've been growing up with Nashville. The year I was born, 1996, is the same year Nashville residents voted to bring the Titans to town. Thousands of supporters jammed into the NFL Yes headquarters last night to celebrate the victory. But even as he... But just because I've grown up with Nashville doesn't mean I get down with it. I hate the fake niceness of Nashville's culture. I wanted to get real. Before I was born, I get the sense that Nashville was a sleepy, tight-knit town. Trust me, I've heard all the back-in-my-day comments from my family. We're at 1730 Hall Street. It is the foundation of me and my siblings' beginning. It is the place where we were brought home to, we were taught love, we learned the value of family, friendships, neighbors, neighborhood, like just community. Everybody went to church on Sundays. The love for God and the presence of the community. The community was built on love and structure for God. Love ye one another, love thy neighbor as thy love thyself. Everybody around here was close, like you know, it's nothing like these days where like every neighbor know each other. One that they watching out, no she won't get no trouble. My family has a deep sense of Nashville being home because of their childhood on Knoll Street. But my tie is weaker because the Nashville I've experienced is not the one they grew up in. My reality is shaped by the aftermath of urban renewal, the construction of I-40, and the underfunding of public housing and schools, all of which further isolated us from each other. The only Nashville I've known has been ambitious, and its goal, bring in more cheddar. In 2013, when I was skipping lunch at Hillsborough, the city was opening the Music City Convention Center. To date, it's the city's priciest property deal. Former Mayor Carl Dean explains why the $623 million price tag was worth it. Downtown is an economic driver in and of itself. You know, growing today for tomorrow's need. It's like feeding a bottomless beast. I couldn't wait to leave it all behind. But from afar, I felt a pull to come back. In 2020, a reporting job opened up at WPLN. My family was quick to remind me that I never wanted to return. It might sound weird to say it, but I'm glad I did. As a reporter, I got the chance to see more clearly the local government's disregard and erasure of the people that earned us the it city status. Behind me are nearly 200 low-income apartments. The plan is to knock those down and make Rutherford room County is growing at a huge pace. There's no way that we can keep taking in trash from however many counties. Rios feels like this home is his heritage. A new his study shows drivers spend about 80 extra Ooh. hours in rush hour traffic each and every Rookie year. Park, the city's largest homeless encampment, officially closed. This comes after. But this is just another chapter in a long history of how Nashville has destroyed its communities in order to grow. We aren't starting this story at the beginning, when settlers like John Donaldson decided they could take the land from Native Americans. But that's how far back this pattern goes. 
Nashville's land has always been big business. Black people created their lives around places like Capitol Hill, Edge Hill, and Jefferson Street. That's because the government, banks, and white residents enforced this as a norm through policies and violence. But then throughout the next century, federal, state, and local officials, basically every level of government, steamrolled these communities, forcing them out. I didn't know this pattern existed until I enrolled in a Black Nashville in public history and public memory class at TSU. Professor LaRotha Williams has taught me more about the city's history than I ever knew before. He pushed us to ask, how can Black people be a part of all of these significant locations in Nashville today, yet we hardly see their presence? When you don't know something, somebody can tell you anything because you're not armed with information, you can't refute it. Somebody can come along and, and just say, country music is something that emerged out of the white community. Black folks never had anything to do with it. But once you know the history, you begin to act a little bit differently. In many ways, it's affirming, it's inspiring, but also infuriating because nobody has told you that. And you wonder if if it's because they didn't know or if they didn't think it was just worthwhile to tell you that. For most of our experience in this country, what we learned, how we learned it, where we learned it and whatever, that was under the control of whites. They had control over that, how we analyzed it, how we interpreted it and what it meant to us. They controlled all of that. Without a doubt, that's what's happening in Tennessee. This all got me wondering, how does my family fit into this? My family built a strong community in Nashville, but then the city destroyed that. Well, so one of the problems with uh, uh, all this displacement is that it breaks people's willingness to attach to place. That's Mindy Fullylove. She's the author of Root Shock, How Tearing Up City Neighborhoods Hurts America. Her book really got me thinking about how this displacement disrupts community, our sense of ourselves, and of our neighbors. It breaks people's willingness to attach to place, and therefore the willingness to assume responsibility for the health of the earth becomes diminished. Have you ever noticed in very disrupted places, people just throw garbage and they don't pick it up? Now, wealthy people won't throw garbage on the street, but they will carelessly throw things out which go to a landfill, which is also a burden. So it, it works at every level of scale. If we are disconnected from love of place and this interconnection, the interconnected web of all life, if we're disconnected from that, we're not going to do what we have to do to save ourselves. I feel that disconnect. What did community look and feel like for my family before city planning tore through it? What did we lose? From 14 to 22, the part of me that says I can trust people or let anybody get close to me, that's gone. That what they left it. They left in. Ah, if you ain't my I family. Said, I wish, see, you're gonna make me cry. I wish you could have experienced this kind of like life growing up. It was so like free and fun. What did we lose? And how can we create something together in its place? What is Nashville's alternate ending? To find out, I've been going back in time to learn Nashville through my family's eyes. I've been traveling a city that looks a lot different than what we now know, making stops at places that shaped life for the generations who came before me. All right. Well, you wanna know what your surprise is? We're actually gonna do your interview inside the house. Really? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, God, thank you, Jesus. Boy, you make me cry. Because <laughs> I wanted to knock on that lady's door and go in. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Ooh, it walls could talk. They'll be laughing when I get in there. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely my great aunt, Anita Cosby. We're standing in front of a house on Knoll Street, which is sandwiched between Fisk on Jefferson and Edge on Buchanan Street. My great-grandfather, John Cosby, first moved here in 1963 with his three kids, Patricia, Johnny Boy, and Anita. 
Anita was nine back then. When we moved over here, we had to tell them we our mother was deceased. And Linda F.'s mother, it bothered her when she heard that. She came over and introduced herself and said, my name is Miss Elmarie Epps, and if y'all need anything, you're welcome to come across the street. She met our dad with us, and she let daddy know that she could watch us while he go to work. The new neighbors didn't miss a beat. Miss Lumet was a mama to me. Mm-hmm. That's why I took to Miss Lumet. She was my protector. Anything went on with me, I go to Miss Lumet. I had my menstrual cycle. I went to Miss Lumet. You needed to Miss Lumet. Yes. No one knows you have one. I went to her, you know, and she told me about it. This meant a lot since her mom had died when she was still in diapers. Miss Lumet lived next door with her dad, seven children, and her partner. They had everything they needed right here in the neighborhood. Even some of Anita's teachers from Warden lived around the area. So right here on Knoll Street, they had teachers, doctors, dancers, policemen, lawyers, beauticians, and musicians. So many paths the kids could follow. And the neighbors generously poured into each other. My dad was always bringing things home. Clothes, bags of clothes that were given to him from his job. And he would allow me and my brothers and sisters to pick two, three objects out of the bag and then pass it around to our friends in our neighborhood. And we was never supposed to speak of it, which we didn't. Oh, it was so much sharing. Yeah, nice clothes. I might be saying this out of turn, but I didn't know what poor was. I never knew it because we had things. We all in the neighborhood had things. It was shared. Sometimes it seemed like that sharing had no bounds. There was one family on the block that went way back with my family, the DeBerrys. My great-granddad, John Cosby, worked with Mr. DeBerry at Union Station for the railroad. Before moving here to Knowles, John and the kids would visit often. My Aunt Anita says they got to eat pinto beans, cabbage, and cornbread, sometimes fried chicken. That isn't the only thing she was taking in. The furniture, the way it was decorated, the smell, the everything was, I knew antique stuff because my grandparents and my daddy, I paid attention to glass, everything. The couches on poles, four poles, covered in plastic, is gold. The house is a three-bedroom, one-bathroom bungalow dressed in dark brown brick. The edges of the roof overhang the intimate porch that can fit a small bench and a swing. A yellowish cream accents the windows, eaves, and door. I thought it was one of the prettiest houses I ever seen. Because it was pretty and big and antique and it was beautiful. Mr. DeBerry was an older man. He died shortly after my family moved to the block. Of course, this community came together to send him off and wrap his family in love. Being generous was a strong value in and outside of the home on Knoll Street. Loving from your heart. Give what you want to somebody. And you keep what you think you might not want for yourself. Give what we like for ourselves to the next person and keep the other for ourselves because it was abundant, you know, and evidently it must have been going to keep coming. The overflow of giving brought my great-granddad John home one day with some really exciting news. And he comes in and tells us, I got some good news for y'all. And we said, what, Daddy? What, Daddy? He said, Miss Deberry says she's going to give that house up, and she wants me to have it so y'all could have a home. And we said, for real? <laughs> That's how we all looked at each other like, for real? And this said, yes, was a really about? special milestone. It had been more than 50 years since my great-grandfather moved to Nashville from Pulaski. Like millions of other Black people around the country at the time, he was looking for opportunities and safety in the big city. And here at 1730 Knoll Street in the mid-1960s, my family found their first real home. They moved in and made it their own. The dining room and mudroom were converted into bedrooms, making enough space for everybody. That was a privilege. 
So the kids took pride in cleaning the fireplace and window seals. And even though it was a rental, my great-grandfather set the example for how to treat a place like home. Our dad rebuilt the living room floor out of wood himself because it was worn down. To see him do this was amazing. To strip every little plank of this out and replace it. Yeah, yeah, that's some hard work. She was always fascinated with watching her dad use his hands. Some of it came from the time John Cosby spent working as a farmer and then as a chef at the Hermitage Hotel in the early 1900s. That hotel is a famous Nashville institution known for hosting high-profile politicians like Presidents Woodrow Wilson, John F. Kennedy, and George W. Bush. In 1912, when John Cosby worked at the hotel, the serving and cooking staff were all Black people. My granddad came here for work and would send money back home to Pulaski. His work ethic and discipline was an extension of his character and what he showed at home. It took three days to do this, I remember, because I said, wow, how is Daddy going to finish all this? And he said, don't worry about it. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm a country. He said, I'm a farmer. I'm a country man. <laughs> That's right. But when he needed help, he could count on his daughter, Patricia. She's Anita's older sister, a freshman in high school at the time. He had a big job raising three kids on his own and see that we do our homework and see that we have quality time together as a family. We sit and learn together. Patricia made sure that Johnny Boy and I would do our homework and learn every day before Daddy came home from work, before we could go outside. <laughs> they invented outside. I'm just playing. But they jump rope with the water hose, play hopscotch, and just about every kind of ball game you can think of. The party moved inside when the family got their first floor model RCA TV with color. You know, the one you had to use your hand to flip. That brought all the neighborhood kids into their home on Knoll Street. Come on, we all in here ready to dance. And our neighbors come too. Uh, we have a house full of church. <laughs> all right, all right. We're going to take a short break. Keep grooving to Soul Train because after the break, my Aunt Nita is going to teach us how it's done. I'm Ambrielle Crutchfield, and this is Nashville's Alternate Ending. We'll be right back. And University of Tennessee College of Social Work, Nashville, offering a new hybrid program designed for working professionals with in-person and online classes. Details at csw.utk.edu slash hybrid. This is a special episode of This is Nashville. I'm WPLN reporter Ambrielle Crutchfield. We've been talking about the way Nashville shaped my family, for better and for worse. I knew growing up that my family had a way more solid foundation of community in the city than I ever did. And that foundation started on Knoll Street out north. It was the 60s, and these kids, they didn't have a care in the world, y'all. Things were peachy. I'm gonna throw it back to my great aunt Anita Cosby. Y'all get ready to do the African twist now. Our first dance consists of the African twist. Ooh. Hey, you go, you take your shoulders and go up and down, and your arms up and down, you do your knees. It's like an exercise. And then you start moving, left to right. And then you move on down with it. Then you get on down with it. Yeah. yeah. You make your shoulders do the African twist. The hippest trip in America. 60 non-stop minutes across the tracks of your mind into the exciting... Yeah, we had a house full of tears. I'm talking about a house full. Edna, Lena, Derrick, Ron, and Aretha. Me, Trish, and Johnny, my brother, and Camilla. Uh, Linda come over every now and then. James was my friend. Then the one you met, Dinky, they lived on 18th. Him and his sister, Patricia, they would come over here. And we get us a soul train line. Johnny Boy was always my partner. Bro, my Aunt Nita can give you a whole backstory and lineage for these kids off the dome. That's because she grew up in a time when adults and children looked out for each other. But it wouldn't stay that way for long. Basically, since my great aunt was born in 1954, there had been plans underway to construct Tennessee's interstate system. The Federal Highway Administrator didn't want the highway to impact white businesses or residents. So in Tennessee, 
They routed interstates through predominantly black neighborhoods, like my family's on Knoll Street. Years later, in 1968, as Anita was preparing to attend Pearl High, a lawsuit against the governor to stop I-40's path through North Nashville was denied. For at least 13 years, the community fought against their neighborhoods being ripped apart. They gathered at Pearl High to discuss how this plan could impact them. How it was going to be important for the neighborhood, which it did make it more accessible, but it also hurt black families because they worked for them houses and they came out of them and they bought them for a little bit of nothing, mm-hmm. like they're doing now. I'm with my Aunt Nita at that very school building this past January. It's called MLK now, but when it was still Pearl High, Anita was a freshman. I-40 was being built about three blocks from her home, right by Lee Chapel, and the service station off 18th and Jefferson Street. Part of that involved building a bridge over the interstate, which left railing exposed. As a matter of fact, me and my brother and all of us crawled across it before they put the concrete up there. We crawled on the beams to the other side. And when I told Daddy he got on us for that, because we could have, might have, would have fell through, you don't even know. But we was just children, just did so much. Twice as many homes and three times the number of businesses, apartments, and churches were impacted than officials pitched. This caused over 100 businesses to be demolished or relocated, wiped out almost 80% of Black ownership, and displaced over 1,000 people. I-40 dissected this thriving community, slicing through North Nashville like a tornado. And in some ways, this pushed my family out. But if the community was a three-legged stool, yet another leg was about to be ripped off. As school lets out this past January at MLK, Anita is reflecting on how important this place was to her when she was this age. At one point, this Pearl High was the only high school Black students could go to. So the school was an extension of the community, close-knit and disciplined. But in 1972, white students integrated the school. Great year was the year they integrated the schools, 1972. Oh, get out of here, 1972. We would have had the largest graduation class before they did that. It would have consisted of about at least 900 kids from the north, the south, the east, and the west because a lot of kids came to school here because of the sports. The black community's fight to have equal access to quality resources resulted in white teachers and students integrating Pearl. And it put people face to face, causing them to challenge their assumptions of each other. Anita didn't care for white people. She'd seen them as former slave owners that were different from her. But her dad challenged her to look past stereotypes. He said, what you see is always not what you see. He said, pay attention and look and listen. You'll learn a lot. This got her thinking on their similarities and allowed Anita to see the humanity in people that look differently than her. Even if there was good in this, it was yet a second challenge to this community, right on the heels of the installation of I-40. A push and pull would continue to reshape her community and the mindset of who's a part of it. But it would be the next generation figuring out this evolving landscape. I'm standing inside the doorway of my family's childhood home, that brick bungalow on Knoll Street we were talking about. As my Uncle Jerome comes to the front door. Why you look so uncomfortable? Welcome to somebody's house. We're doing an interview. Okay. Hello. Yeah, you funny. He funny. Wow. Woo. Different. What? No. Yeah, you funny. That's what. Come on. Get going. Let's get going. You didn't got me. Oh, man, you got me. I just finished. Man, I've never seen my uncle like this. I love surprising people, but I think this takes the cake. It's like he's seen a ghost. How you feel? Uh, Nostalgic. Wow. They look different. I should sleep right there. Yeah, yeah. They did a good job. God, you messed up my house. Changed the grades, yep. How much they want for it? (laughs) What? Come on, let's start, let's start, let's start. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of flabbergasted right now. 
Yeah, I've, I've never seen you like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the beginning. This is Jerome. See my Uncle Jerome and his siblings? They grew up here, too. Jerome was born in 1969, the year after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. It was right around this time that the interstate was ripping through the heart of North Nashville. And Nashville was still stalling, trying to figure out how to deal with the politics of integrating schools. But Jerome and his sister, my aunt Dewana Morris, they're just kids back then, exploring their neighborhood just like my great aunt Nita had a chance to a few years earlier. And it was, after all, still a black neighborhood. From the 16th to the 21st block of Knoll Street, it's like one big family. The mentality is it takes a village to raise a child. Retired neighbors like Miss Lou May are still around, keeping an eye out for the neighborhood kids. But now, it's not my great aunt Nita, it's Jerome and her niece, Dewana. This is Dewana. What are you doing? Who's that on y'all's porch? You know ain't nobody supposed to be at your house and ain't nobody, no adults there. Most people on our street rear their children the same way, have the same rules. Nobody's at my house when I'm not at home. Uh, you can't go outside till the house is clean. Those type of things. Miss Lou May, who was a mother figure to my great aunt Anita, opened her home to this next generation. And my aunt Dewana loved Miss Lou May's cooking. Man, she made that fried corn. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. I never even knew, never knew what that was till she made some. Mm-mm-mm. It's cooking a cast iron skillet, and I think she used bacon grease. But it, and you, it's the fresh corn of the man. Yeah, that nurturing and caring for each other, it also meant discipline. But when you grow up, you appreciate some of those life lessons. And who knows what I got protected from that I don't even realize, you know. Since neighbors knew more about each other, they also knew when somebody wasn't a member of their community. Even the kids participated in keeping the adults safe. I'm going to throw it to my Uncle Jerome. Miss Johnson, three houses up. I'm cutting the grass and taking out her trash, right? So you think I'm going to let anybody throw rocks at a window or break or drop trash in the yard? No. You got to respect Miss Johnson because I'm vested in Miss Johnson. Miss Johnson is invested in me. I'm the young man who helps her. So she's checking, are you keeping your grades up? Do you need help with anything? Okay, that type of thing. Mr. Owens, who took us fishing and stuff, he didn't have to, but he lives on the street. He don't want the kids on the street to get in trouble. What's the best way to keep kids out of trouble? Keep them active. So I'm going to take y'all and teach y'all how to fish. Mr. Woodard, he had no kids. He wasn't related to anybody. He wasn't as close to everybody as they know, but everybody respected him because he was a war vet. So what did he say? I'm going to teach y'all how to defend yourself. You didn't have to do that. All of those neighbors could have kept to themselves, but they didn't. And that choice to share knowledge with the next generation left a lifelong impression for my Uncle Jerome. Just like the generation before, my family had just about everything they needed on Knoll Street. But this time, there was a desire for more. So we're back in the house, and it's the early 80s. The big room, aka the living room, was a space for an 11-year-old Jerome to daydream. He loved his Encyclopedia Britannica and National Geographics, both gifts from his granddad, John Cosby. He orders the Encyclopedia Britannicas and the National Geographics to get the prize, but he gives us the books to read. To the left of the fireplace is the TV. It has rabbit ears and the foil sits on the hangers ready to be tuned. He remembers Lawrence Welk directing his big band, music from Duke Ellington, the Dorseys, and other legends. And when he flips the channel, the excitement is met with calm. Welcome to Mutual of Omaha's Wild King. Cougar kittens showing off their sharp teeth and nails. These are the few channels he has access to. But it's like a portal, letting him know there's life beyond the North Nashville blocks he roams. Just, I just get tired of seeing the same thing all the time. Same people, same thing. It's like being on a hamster wheel. I don't know how to say, I, I've always known there's more to life. So, and then when I'm reading the books, 
it takes me there. And then I get to see the images. So it's like, I want to, that's what I want to do. I want to see everything. I'm an adventurer. My Uncle Jerome would soon get a chance to explore beyond the confines of his neighborhood. You know that neighborhood school my great aunt Anita attended, Warden? Well, Jerome went there too. And that's where he made friends with a white kid from Britain named Mark Haberly, an 11-year-old who had recently moved to the States. That's honestly when I learned there's no such thing as race. They looked at it culturally, different cultures. We don't talk about race, black, white, you know. We talk about culture. They weren't worried about their race. They were too busy finding things that they had in common. Soon, Jerome asked his mom if they could have a sleepover, but my granny Pat was leery. She wanted to meet Mark's parents first. So they came over to the family's house on Knoll Street, and the adults stood outside by the tree talking about who knows what. Man, me and Mark kicking it. We ain't worried about nothing they talking about. We over here beside the field with Steve and Patrick and them. I'm showing him the logs on the side of the house, the furnace, because he was tripping out because I said, man, I got, a sho- I got a shovel, coal in the furnace. Quit playing. I show him the furnace, show him the thing. He said, okay, why? He tripping. He want to lift logs just to see what I'm like. Fool, I'm looking at him like, you crazy. You acting like this is fun. This work. <laughs> you know, this is how we stay warm around here. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, nothing was wrong with Mark. They just didn't know how differently they lived. When it was time to spend the night at Mark's house in Belmede, my Uncle Jerome was stunned. Damn, boy. They got a mansion. <laughs> Woo-wee. This y'all out? Ooh-wee. Somebody, woo, got money. <laughs> that night, oh, man, he got his own bedroom and bathroom. I ain't never seen nobody get a room to themselves. Is you crazy? For real? For real? He's like, yeah, that's your room. Where are you staying at? Huh? Everybody got their own room. They were going to have to pry me away from that place. I ain't here. That first night, I'm, hey, don't wake me up. I went to bed early just so I could sleep by myself. Dude, they didn't even have to leave to play. They had ping pong, pool, Miss Pac-Man, and Galaga. Remember, this is the 80s, so this is super luxurious. But the cherry on top, oh, it had to be this one last thing. Miss Molina came down and asked, she said, what would you like to eat? I look at Mark. I'm looking at Mark. What do you mean? I ask. I'm asking her. What do you mean? She said, well, what do you want, McDonald's, pizza, Burger King? You know, dumb, dumb Jerome, I asked. I get to choose? Can I have some Kentucky Fried Chicken? Straight up out of there, that's right. Two-piece baked beans. I ain't going to forget that. Two-piece with the baked beans. <laughs> Man, he's well. At first... He wanted to keep the adventures at Mark's to himself, but his little brother, Stephen Boyd, was attached to his hip. So one day, Jerome brought him along on the hour-long bike ride from North Nashville to Bell Mead. My Uncle Stephen trailed behind on his black bike with gold trim and a fat seat cushion, a gift he'd gotten that past Christmas. When they finally rolled up on their bikes, Stephen got caught up on the long driveway leading up to the mansion. I was just scared to a space for me. It was too big. I said, I ain't going in there. <laughs> it might be a honey house. I don't know what it's going on. Wait, like a castle. <laughs> Not a honey house. That was just a little too much space for Steven. But the experience was eye-opening. He got a fresh perspective on his big brother, Jerome. I can see why his mind was wider. You know what I mean? Because he's seeing different stuff. You know what I'm saying? He could see his brother, Jerome, wanted something new. And he'd gotten a taste of it. Even still... Jerome had some perspective on the value of what he already had. I'm happy at home. I like going out here hanging out with you. You got the big house. You got the nice car, the whole, I mean, family. The postcard looked good. I used to always tell him that. I always tell him that. Mark, man, postcard looked good. I mean, the picture on the postcard, if I'm looking at it, it looked good. But when I look behind the postcard, ain't got no substance. Well, my, my postcard is weight, it's frayed a little bit. But it's it's heavy, because it's on a block. I just got to clean up the postcard. That's it. I got to clean my postcard. You got to rebuild yours.
There's no question that integration in the path of I-40 through North Nashville changed this community. But at least for a while, it still felt like home. By the mid-80s, the postcard was starting to fray even more. Their sense of community did begin to deteriorate against the backdrop of a lot of hard stuff that was hitting Nashville and the rest of the country. It's around that time that my granny Pat decided to create her own postcard. She and her three kids left Knowles and landed at Cheatham Place, the projects off Roselle Parks Boulevard across from Salem Town. If you cut across the interstate bridge, it only takes six minutes to bike from Knowles to Cheatham, but it feels worlds away. Cheatham was built in the 1930s for white families, while the Andrew Jackson projects near Fisk were built for black people. In interviews from the Tennessean, Cheatham Place family seemed hopeful. But by 1980, health professionals were sounding the alarm that the more residents were focusing on surviving, the more serious their health conditions were. Cheatham wasn't as overcrowded as other projects throughout the city, but violence in the project was a front-page story. They went so far as to describe it as a way of life. But what they didn't say was on the federal level, Section 8 and public housing programs got massive cuts in 1976 and 82. President Ronald Reagan was reducing the government's involvement and thought the private market should step in. It's with this backdrop that my family moved into Cheatham. My mom, Brandy Boyd, remembers seeing the crack epidemic hit home at Cheatham Place. There was a corner store, so people hung at the corner store. Some just hanging to hang, some hanging to sell drugs. Um, so just, a, I think, a lot of different dynamics took place. And feels like that's when some shifts started taking place within the family, and maybe for everybody individually, unknowingly. Even though she was so young when they were living in that house on Knowles, Brandy remembers how hard the transition was. How did you mention that everything changed once y'all left Knoll Street? How did things change? You jerk your head back and bat your eyes. What's in the darkness? <laughs> I don't know, a lot changed. I'm sitting here trying to give my mom a moment. We're posted up on a car outside of Knoll Street, and she's processing maybe something she's never told me or thought about. She gets a little emotional, and she just needs a second before we can keep going. Okay, wasn't expecting that. I just think that, um, I don't know, so much changed in our family, I think, over time. And I don't, I don't think I've ever thought about it until now, or realized it, I guess. A lot of my family looks back at that move from Knoll Street as a turning point. Even Jerome, who wanted to leave to explore the new world. I'm leaving the only place I know, really, or that I really care about. So it bothers you. But at the same time, I feel like, well, I'm going to do something different. Let me see what's going to happen. Ooh, did something happen? <laughs> We're going to take one more break. When we get back, Jerome shares how in the projects at Cheatham, he learned you adapt or fold. We'll be right back. This is Nashville's alternate ending. This is a special episode of This is Nashville from WPLN News. I'm Ambrielle Crutchfield. We've been talking about how Nashville shaped my family and how my family shaped Nashville. They had such a solid start in their thriving North Nashville community on Knoll Street. But things changed quick when the city and state decided to rip through their neighborhood with the interstate. It's just one of the ways this city has decided what is and isn't worth remembering. My uncle Jerome was 16 when the family left their thriving community 
around Knowles to live in the projects at Cheatham Place. He remembers going for a walk with his mom one day in August, back then around 1985. He's wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt, and they have a conversation that changes him. But he won't tell me what happened that day. He won't tell anybody. I wish I could, but that was, that was something I promised I'm taking to the grave, and, and, and I will. But I understood that day that playtime was over. He was the oldest guy in the house now, and that came with a lot of responsibility. When you're young and you're a boy, you can enjoy life. You can choose what you, you still have options of choosing what you want to do and, and kind of feeling your way through to see it. Do I want, if I want to be athletic, if I want to be smart, if I want, you can sit back and take the time and the mindset to chart your path and actually work toward it. When you're a man, no, you got to look out for your family. You have no choice. The whole looking out for Miss Johnson mentality is gone. Now it's about looking out for himself and his family. On Knowles, there was space to resolve conflict through words. He's seen his grandfather, John Cosby, agree to disagree. But in Cheatham, everyone was forced to survive. So that wasn't how things went down. And less than two weeks in, a fight breaks out where Jerome says he had to show his family wasn't a joke. Basically, I'm new to the neighborhood, testing to see exactly where I was at, you know what I mean? Can I survive? That's, it, was, it was a petty, nothing argument. I can't even remember. It was something trivial. This right here, it helped me because it made me strong. That's the 25% of good that it did. The other 75 was all bad, all bad. This right, this place destroyed my family. What about the rest? How do you feel like it changed you, the 75%? My trust for people in general, down, slim to none. Okay, well, my closeness with my family ain't the same. It's because of this place. They're always having to feel on guard 24-7. It was like, if I equated anything, I have to equate it to prison, where you feel like 24-7, you have to be on guard all the time. Imagine being a kid, you don't know if you're eating tonight or you're not. Maybe it was the environment or the transition from being teenagers to young adults, but the family shifted from thinking of the collective to their selves. They hadn't lost everything they'd gained on Knowles, though. And don't get me wrong, we all, we all always going to be there for each other. We knew that when we was here. But it was like we all just kind of went different directions. In 1988, Jerome set out for the Navy. It was his best shot to get out of the neighborhood and provide for his baby Jessica that was on the way. He was gone for less than a year for boot camp. But when he returned, Stephen, who was in high school at the time, had earned the nickname Swole because of his stature. And later, Stephen would find his own way to cope with life's pressures. When did you realize that you being gone, it may have impacted him? When I came back from the Navy the first time, and he was, <laughs> he went from being Steven to Swole. You know what I mean? And I'm like, what the, uh, where all this come from? And then the way he was moving, I'm like, Whew. So now he grown. He wasn't, he wasn't legally grown, but as far as mentally and, and how he moved, he grown now. Cause Steve, Steve was taking care of Brandon really, when it was all said and done. Just kind of thinking back to coming back and seeing, you know, that his lifestyle was changing and the responsibilities, and then later kind of understanding that he ends up having an addiction that he's still working with today. How do you process all that? Even when you see, like for me, when I see him hurting himself the way he hurt himself, that right there is probably the hardest thing for me to deal with is to see him the way he is. My biggest fear now, I only got one thing I worry about nowadays, just one, is getting a phone call saying my brother gone. Don't nothing else, I don't worry about nothing else in this life. We haven't traveled that far and not that much time has really passed, but a lot changed. My family had gone from having a tight safety net to watch their kids and homes to an unpredictable environment where everyone had to be on their toes.
Eight years ago, my great aunt Anita found herself sitting on the top step of the concrete porch at 1730 Knowles. She remembers that day so clearly. I smell good smell, sweet smell, magnolias, mm, four clocks over there by the window, mm, pine. <laughs> feels good. It feels safe right here. It feels warm. It feels excited. My, my heart is beating so fast right now. It feels so good. I'm happy. By this point in 2015, Nashville and my family feels worlds away from what she remembers from her youth. But she's drawn back to her safe place, right here on Knowles. I came back to sit on the porch because I was heavy trouble. Everybody had passed, and I felt alone. My mom, my dad, my brother, and my sister, both of my brothers and my sister. My brother died on daddy's birthday, March the 30th. So I came over here and sit on this porch. It gave me some strength. It gave me some peace. All I could do is feel like I was safe and I was around them. So it was something about being home that made me feel safe and with God on this porch. I've never known a home like the one my aunts, uncles, and mom describe. They've taught me that finding and creating that takes staying put in one place and having real conversations and building trust to get there. I feel a pull to get back to the basics figuring out where I want to be in the world and who I want to be building with. That's why before we finished this project, we decided to take a rough draft to the community. It's a Thursday night and we're at Lee Chapel, right around the corner from my family's old home on Knowles. My great granddad actually came to church here for over 50 years. My cousin John Morris is here. There's Virginia Holland, who was displaced from the River Chase apartments. Willie Sims, but the guest of honor tonight? Oh man, it's gotta be Miss Linda Epps. And remember that Soul Train line? Yeah, Miss Linda had a part in that too. She's lived on Knoll Street for almost 70 years. My grandparents, my father, was born on this street, was born on Knoll Street, and in the next block. And see, back in those days, everybody was like family. Mm-hmm in the neighborhood because people did not move like they do now. So you had, you bonded and we, we're still family. What goes on with them goes on with me. What goes on with me goes on with them because okay. we're family. It's right. That's right. Yeah. This is so special. <laughs> I know, I feel so emotional just I know. realizing the changes that you've experienced. The people that move into the area are really very, they're very good neighbors, mm-hmm. very good neighbors. But the thing about it is, as quickly as they come, mm-hmm. they're gone. Yeah. Mm. And that's different from the way we grew up. We don't have that now. It's, it's gone. And I see Nashville rebuilt for those coming in, not for those of us here. Because economically, we don't fit in the picture. The houses that are built Nothing that's built is for most of us here in Nashville because we don't fit in that economic status. So who gives a darn? Who actually gives a flippity flop? I mean, (laughs) and every day, all day, I get calls. Are you interested in selling your home? I'm looking for Miss Linda. You want to offer me peanuts? And now where am I supposed to go? And you don't really give a flippity flop Mm -mm. where I go. All you want is my property. You got to feel pushed out. When I have to say, and, and I am a registered voter and I believe in it, but sometimes when I even listen to these officials What they're saying is totally inapplicable to me. When I think of today and school and yesteryears, we certainly had that guidance. 
Ambriel's grandfather, my parents, they wanted the best for us and they encouraged us. We, 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 to go to, go to school, to do. I mean, it, this is, we had that basis and it, it, it makes the difference. And I don't see that in communities today. We've talked so much this hour about what happens when community is disrupted. Before we left that night, I asked everyone, what is your role in creating community here in Nashville? I think it's my job to just do it as big as possible and show these kids and stay there with them just so they can see, like, you did that? Like, yeah, bro. We still magical beings, you know what I'm saying? I like to let them know they magical, they just don't know it. The whole world is running off the spirit of little black kids. Whatever they think is cool moves the world. I think for me it's showing up in spaces like this continuously, making myself available and show up, just show up, you know? That's important, like I don't want the conversation that I've listened to today to just to stop. This is Sierra, and this is Nashville's alternate ending. This is Big Fella. I'm Linda. This is Romar Quiz. This is John. I'm Courtney Orozco. I'm Elisa Jernigan. This is Dwight Burr. And this is Nashville's alternate ending. Dang. I'm Amberielle Crutchfield. I produced this special episode of This Is Nashville with executive producer Andrea Tudhope, who was my editor. Special thanks to the community who participated in our listening session and the folks at Lee Chapel. Thank you to Rebecca and Trey Hamilton for letting me and my family spend so much time in their house on Knoll Street. Shout out to Nina Cardona, Mariba Knight, Steve Harouche, Tony Gonzalez, Michael Robertson, Latani Turner, and Cynthia Abrams. Kalile Colonna for some beats and my whole family for trusting us with their personal stories. I love y'all. This is Nashville's alternate ending. And the University of Tennessee College of Social Work, Nashville. Proud sponsor of This is Nashville's immersive documentary episode, Alternate Ending. Learn more about degree programs at csw.utk.edu.